Welcome to Unlocking Science, a series where we explore how to talk about science and trust in a world with multiple spheres of intersecting knowledge, complexity in scientific discovery, and our own sometimes irrational biases. This four-part series is brought to you by the International Science Council. I'm your host, Nick Ishmael Perkins, a journalist and researcher in the field of communication. In the last episode, we spoke about the many ways that distrust in science is expressed and the need for scientists to consider their own positions, including who they speak to and for, which leads us neatly into today's episode where we focus on the link between communicating science and building knowledge. We need to look at how people process information and their own experiences to make knowledge that they can base decisions on. And the question is, what should science communication be doing about that? Welcome to Unlocking Science, where today we look at how to talk about science and knowledge. Joining us are two guests whose work has put them at the front line of the battleground on knowledge, exploring everything from science history and traditional knowledge to the more recent deaths of indigenous environmental activists and the dark temptations of pseudoscience. Our first guest is Hena Lenes Ortez, a Mayan scholar from Yucatan, Mexico, who is currently working as an assistant professor of Indigenous Studies at Bishop's University in Canada. His research touches on different aspects of Indigenous culture and art forms, and how Indigenous peoples using digital media and technologies can reclaim and revitalize their heritage. Now, I've known Hena for nearly 20 years, so I'm really excited to be able to share one of our conversations with you. Welcome, Hena. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And Yvette Dantremont, also known as CyBabe, a public speaker, science blogger, and former analytic chemist with a background in forensics and toxicology. Her blog, CyBabe, is dedicated to clearing up misinformation about science, food, and nutrition. And with CyBlog, she's also become something of a historian of science. Big welcome to the sometimes hilarious CyBabe, Yvette. I'm terrified what I am when I'm not hilarious, but thank you so much for having me, Nick. So today we're going to start by looking at foreignness. We're going to talk about how we regard different ways of understanding the world. Hena, do you want to share your case study about climate science and indigenous knowledge? Yes, thank you, Nick. I've spent uh, a fair share of my professional life trying to figure out concrete ways of communicating the value of indigenous knowledge to increase scholarly scientific understanding in areas like uh, biodiversity, archaeology and history, arts, linguistics and communication, health and society, and politics and democracy. Indigenous as well as non-Indigenous scholars are involved um, in different corners of the globe, but, um, most notably in North America, also Latin America, Oceania and, and Africa. Indigenous knowledge systems are highly diverse and dynamic, sophisticated, embodied, relational, and community focus. And perhaps these last three elements, uh, the embodiment of indigenous knowledge, tend to be more challenging um, for some of the long-established traditions in scientific inquiry, um, some of which are prone to oversimplification of reality and they use a notion of objectivity that tends to ignore the relationality um, between humans and non-humans as well as the role of humans and the politics in the shaping of knowledge. So, Hannah, can you give me a concrete example of, of, of what you mean? For instance, I know we talk often about 
the management of land and the impact that that has on climate change by indigenous communities? Yes, there's been a remarkable shift in the way uh, a few scientists have reapproached indigenous knowledge uh, in order to find new answers for the problems that we're facing as a species. What I have discovered is that many of the ancient teachings, uh, quote unquote, that indigenous people still treasure um, are actually key for the preservation and enrichment of biodiversity. So one example is, for instance, the, um, uh, the incorporation of um, so-called cultural burning um, in the management of landscapes in Australia and also parts of North America, uh, which basically consists on a series of um, human-controlled fires that are started by uh, communities and they are overseen by communities. Cultural burnings have to be performed according to certain cultural protocols that are uh, embedded in the life of the community. So recognition that these forms of uh, burning are actually helpful to the maintenance of biodiversity have led to, to a significant reduction um, in the damage produced by wildfires, especially in Australia. Thank you. I mean, I think this is a fascinating area and it's interesting to see how different knowledge systems have been practicing this actually over several generations. And now, Yvette, I'm going to turn to you because your case study presents us with, I think, something that's really fascinating. We see how people's idea of science is built on ideas of foreignness in a very different way. And it's actually a story that some of us will feel is quite familiar, and that's the story of Typhoid Mary. I used to debunk bad science for my main beat, and then I kind of started my column as a science history column this year, and it's been really interesting to see what popular stories in our popular consciousness are. We have a slightly you know, we don't quite have all the details on. The story that we all know of Typhoid Mary, the details we have on it aren't inaccurate. It's just what details does the public remember and what details in a story get told? What gets selectively left out? that don't tell the story uh, uh, correctly or tell a story that demonize a certain group of people. So Typhoid Mary uh, was, uh, if I can be so bold as to call her this, she was a loud, brash Irish immigrant uh, to America at a time when, you know, there were signs everywhere saying Irish need not apply. She was uh, cooking uh, for rich people. She was a private chef. Now, this was at a time when the concept of an asymptomatic spreader was brand new. It wasn't like people knew about this and she was being told, yep, asymptomatic spreader. She's like, oh, I got it. I should go stay home. People did not know about this yet. They were telling her, you're spreading this disease. And she's like, I've never had a symptom. This is not a thing that happened. So she was kind of in the, not in the right, but socially normal for having the reaction she did. She was being persecuted uh, differently than other people who had, like there were, there were at the time that this happened to her, about 400 other asymptomatic spreaders that were known in New York City. She was the only one that was arrested. Uh, she was the only one that was chased down to the degree that she was. Uh, she sickened about 50 some odd people. I believe three died as a result of the, the spread of her disease. Now, there was also a man who, uh, I, I like to call him Typhoid Tony. He did the same kind of moved around, changed his name, 
game, worked as a cook. The difference is he sickened over a hundred people, but they were poor orphan children. She sickened rich people. So why don't we refer to typhoid Tony when we talk about someone who spreads disease? We talk about typhoid Mary because she was making rich people sick and she was an easy target because she was an immigrant woman. So there are so many different things at play here. Why do we think of the story as, oh, this woman who just wanted to spread disease no matter what? Why do we drop the, the fact that she was being persecuted differently than other people at the time? And why don't we talk about the guy that did this worse and to children? Um, there are so many different things that happen here between the psycom factor, between the, the stuff that people remember about it, and the fact that this was a different uh, a thing societally at the time. We know different things about diseases at different times. Knowledge isn't static. And I, I look at all these things that I found out in a day of, you know, trying to make sure I had all the facts right of, to write an 800-word thing. It was interesting to see how the different reactions to the story that people thought they knew played out. Because some people are like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And some people are like, no, Typhoid Mary was bad. How dare you change my perception? So it's interesting what happens when you pull the carpet back on a story that you thought you knew. This is really interesting because just as you talk about knowledge being a fluid thing, right? And it's quite dynamic and you think you know it. And so we have Typhoid Mary. But in a way, Hannah, what we're thinking about too is what we think we know about indigenous knowledge and you know the extent to which it might be respected or respectable where its legitimacy comes from i think this is the point here that's really interesting for me i was just going to say that the perspective that uh, yvette has just shared with us um, actually mirrors a lot of the history that um, has prevailed in the troubled relationship between science and indigenous peoples, right? And not just indigenous peoples, but also other non-Western racialized uh, peoples, you know, their forms of knowledge and the, uh, and the sort of experience they, they, that they have of the world has often been dismissed. There was a time not so long ago when uh, Western science was still portraying indigenous peoples as irrational savages. Uh, their knowledge was generally dismissed as uh, superstition because it was uh, wrapped in ceremony and ritual. And, and many of the bodies were also experimented with for the benefit of, of other societies. So that, that kind of um, uh, foreignness, the, the foreignness of indigenous peoples and their knowledge, as well as other, other sections of the population, you know, has always been uh, troublesome for science, right? So, you know, it's, it's an aspect of science that needs to be uh, revisited. It's interesting because I often reflect on the fact that our societies are actually built on things which are very difficult to prove from a scientific perspective. Religion, which is perhaps the more obvious example, um, but are still really important for organizing our societies. And as scientists, we have to reconcile ourselves with that. Science has a lot of uh, in common with the, with the type of knowledge that's been produced in, in other parts of the world, right? So I think that, you know, the key is not to dismiss scientific practice, but actually um, uh, revisit the way in which um, it often has related with the complexity, the embodiment, and the relationality that is characteristic of different indigenous uh, knowledge and other forms of knowledge, the knowledge that um, racialized peoples uh, have or non-Western societies have. I think that uh, whenever and wherever indigenous peoples um, have been treated with respect, when scientists have taken the time to consider respectfully the knowledge that they have, um, that, as I said, is based on empirical observation and systematic uh, explanations, or not just of the natural world, but also the social cohesion and social uh, behavior. Uh, this has definitely led to uh, a gradual and yet significant increase 
in our understanding of uh, you know, different phenomena. And Yvette, I know that you have a very interesting approach to science education, and I use that word very cautiously. I'm not teaching science in what I do. That's what I tell people. I'm not your science teacher. I swear way too much. <laughs> but apart from the, the colorful language that you use, I think that there's a really important approach that you take to to how you share science, right? And I think it's related to what Henner is saying here, which is about... Um, unpacking it for people to be able to engage with and to relate to their experience. Exactly. I don't mean talk down to people, but I do mean you have to use a common language. And that means whether or not you're talking from an indigenous uh, group uh, to an outsider or to just, you know, to someone who's not a scientist, uh, like I need to change my vocabulary uh, when I'm trying to ex- uh, to explain a scientific thing. I just need to make sure I'm using words that somebody who has a bright, interested 15-year-old educational background on this can understand. And I think that sometimes we forget the language that we use in these situations is really, really important uh, just to make sure that we're getting a a common background on the science understood. Because sometimes I I see this with other science writers, uh, there's a a desire to get all the words out there. Like everyone doesn't need to know the exact mechanisms of a spike protein, but they do need to know how to interact with the fact that a spike protein is being used in the vaccine like you don't need to know a to z what to how to become a virologist you do need to know how this is going to change your life out in the world and where to get more information and i think that's how uh, as science communicators uh where we're supposed to be with it and where we can improve things in this there are two things i've observed about the way that you approach your science communication one of them is the importance of stories but there's also the issue of um learning from political communication. I try to write the most interesting article I can, and I think that will make people come in and learn something about some science. So if you're trying to get people to learn some science, don't sit there and write a list of facts. Write a good story, and they're going to come in and be fascinated by your science that you just happen to sprinkle in there. Uh, And I think that's something that people lose uh, sometimes. And I, I write about things from hundreds of years ago, from ancient history. One year, hundreds of of years from now, another science communicator is going to be writing, oh, there was a huge breakthrough in RNA vaccines, uh, you know, in in, in 2021. I wonder what happened. Are they going to not mention that there was a a pandemic? Are they not going to mention any of the things that happened around it? No, they have to mention the history, why this happened, why this technology had been worked on for a few decades and then finally, boom, got the push. Like, and that's the thing. All of these different breakthroughs did not happen in a vacuum. There were people making them happen. There were groups that were fighting against each other. There were there were indigenous peoples whose efforts had been suppressed and that eventually allowed to, to shine. There were things that we need to, to know, and we're going to find that out better through a story. And sometimes we can't shy away from the fact that there are political uh, and historical things in there. And that makes the story better. I mean, in fact, history is made through stories. I just want to add to that. It also resonates very um, strongly with the way in which indigenous people's knowledge uh, is um, shared um, and, and transmitted, right? So m- most of our knowledge is um, crafted into stories, and those stories are also uh, constantly changing, you know, depending on who tells the story, right? But the nucleus, uh, the core, the important aspects of that story um, are always there, uh, and, and those continue to be reproduced, and, and they continue to be adapted, and they continue to be 
points of discussion, points of learning, as in the example that Ivel was giving. You know, uh, when you tell a story that um, excludes the participation of humans, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if those have to do with uh, scientific achievements or with uh, the impact of a pandemic, uh, you are living outside important aspects of that knowledge. So there's no knowledge without humans. And uh, increasingly, we also come to realize that a lot of the events that affect the lives of humans are determined by non-humans, um, non-human entities that also have agency, even though we have learned not to recognize that agency. I'm, I'm talking about uh, the environment, I'm talking about the weather, I'm talking about the climate, which is different to the weather. All of those aspects that are non-human uh, have an impact on the, on the way history behaves, history develops. I want to ask Yvette in 30 seconds, I know that we talked about a campaign that you were working on and you said there was a particular lesson that you learned about science communication from that. Do you want to just say something about that? When you're trying to get people on your side for something, no matter what, about 30% of the people are going to be on your side no matter what. About a third of the people are not going to agree with you. They're always going to think you're wrong. You're aiming to get about that third in the middle that's like, I'm just not sure what to think to try to get a little smarter a little bit more information about the world try to write in a way that's going to win that third that's like i i want to be smarter a bit more informed remember who your audience is remember who you're trying to reach you're going to be a better science communicator and you're going to reach more people for that remember you're trying to win that third in the middle thank you um now as we are run out of time just come to that final section of the podcast where i say just answer the question um, and it's your 60 seconds to actually sum up any takeaways. I'm going to start with you, Henna. Just answer the question, how do we talk about science and knowledge? We need to engage with the complexity. We need to also put stories in the center of the way we talk about science. And uh, when it comes to indigenous peoples, uh, we also need to acknowledge how dynamic the forms of knowledge are, um, how, um, you know, there are, related to practice and to have the patience and the listening skill to, to really pay attention, to, to spend time with communities, to explain in their own language what science is about. Uh, and without that, you know, we will we'll continue with the distrust and with the rejection of science uh, by Indigenous peoples and other communities as well. Brilliant. Thank you. And now, Yvette, just answer the question. How do we talk about science and knowledge? The best way I explain it is Australia. Once upon a time, this continent was sitting there not bothering anyone. The Aboriginals were living in peace and harmony. The British showed up in the late 1700s, bought a bunch of animals over to shoot at because they just needed bunny rabbits and foxes. And you have to learn what's the right terminology for everyone out there. Are these are these Australians or these Aboriginals? What are the words I'm going to use when I'm describing everyone? Are the animals that are screwing up the landscape, are they uh, invasive species? What's the history of the place? How did we get there? And what's the best way that people are going to understand this so that they have a sense of how this all happened, how we got here, and what's still going on today, and how to not repeat the mistakes of the past. Okay, I mean, that was a lovely metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you both for a really enlightening um, exchange. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you, Hannah. It's been a pleasure. I mean, I really enjoy uh, this conversation. Thank you for having me.
Well, these have been some wonderfully engaging conversations, both today and across the whole series. We'd like to thank all of our guests for their fascinating contributions. We do hope that you've enjoyed the series and found it as thought-provoking and insightful as we have while making it. To listen to previous episodes and to learn more about the Unlocking Science series, please visit unlockingscienceseries.com. And if you're in the UK, you can go to the International Science Council website, council.science. This podcast was produced for the International Science Council by BBC Storyworks Commercial Productions in cooperation with VoiceWorks. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.